0: Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank You that You have made us and Father, that You have made us priests to You. Father, that You have done this work. It is not the work of our hands. It is You who have done this. Father, may we truly cling to the rock that is our foundation, Jesus Christ our Lord. And Father, today as we come as the church here on earth, Lord, we lift our voices with the church victorious, the church that is surrounding your throne, And we sing glory to the Lamb. Father, we can show our true resolve in worship today by listening to Your Word. Father, give us ears to hear that we may know and understand Your Word. May we, as Your true disciples, truly come And know what you say, because you, through the Spirit, explain it to us. And Father, may we, as we encounter your Word, which shows us the infinite, eternal glory that you possess, Father, may we leave here different than when we first came in. Father, work in our midst by your grace, through your Spirit, and through the ministry of your Word today. We pray all this. In Christ's precious name, pleading his blood. Amen. If you take your Bibles, turn with me to Second Peter chapter 3. Second Peter chapter 3. Two more sermons in Second Peter uh, this evening, this morning, and uh, then Lord willing next week, and then we will be away. I'm looking forward to uh, having Bart fill in for us, and I hope you'll looking forward to hearing him bring the word uh, when I'm gone. And then once we, once we come back, we'll begin our new study in the minor prophets looking at Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah and Malachi, looking at the last 12 prophets. Second Peter chapter three, I'm going to go ahead and read verses 14 through 18, and then we're going to be focusing our attention on the first phrase of verse 18 this morning. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 14, "...therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these," that is, the new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells, "...be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace, and count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters." And knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. I don't know if you remember back to when you were a kid. I think about this quite a bit, but kids are always wanting to grow up, aren't they? They always want to be bigger. You know, we do these things in our houses where we have on a door frame someplace in the house, we we put the kids up against there and we mark how tall they are and track it throughout the years. Uh, Kids want to grow up, but we get conflicting ideas on that in our day and age because when I was growing up, Toys R Us used to have this thing that uh, Toys R Us said, I'm a Toys R Us kid, I don't want to grow up. I don't want to grow up, I'm a Toys R Us kid. Um, And... I feel like some in my generation reflect that very well, that they haven't grown up. In fact, this reality, this desire to grow, but yet desire to remain childish is very much a problem in the church as well. The writer of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 12, tells us that we are need to be eating solid food, but because we've remained... Without growth, we still have to take milk. We haven't progressed beyond what we need to progress in order to know the truth or to grow in the truth of God's Word. Again, Hebrews 5.12, For through by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. So again, as we've been looking at the power that pilgrims have in the pilgrim path that Peter calls us to in 1 Peter, that power is found in knowing Christ. We see Peter ending this book by describing these principles that we need to have. We've already seen that we need to walk with diligent obedience. We need to be eager in our obedience. We need to be faith-filled in our obedience. And we need to be patient as we wait for the Lord's coming in our obedience. And then last week we saw how we're called to walk a careful journey. Scripture commands us to a careful walk. It's not something we can go about haphazardly. And as we're walking carefully, Peter particularly entreats us to reject error and to seek stability. We turn away from the error of lawless people, and we do that so that we do not lose our own stability. So we've seen those two principles, and now we see the third principle that Peter reminds us of as he ends this book. We must grow as we walk. We must grow as we walk. I think what Peter is putting his finger on is a problem that we all at times have experienced. And in fact, I think more often than not, we approach our Christian life with a comfortability, with sort of a, a stagnation, with, a, with an idea that we're okay with where we are in our walk with the Lord. But Peter calls us to grow in grace and to grow in knowledge. So two words, if there's anything you remember from today's sermon, remember these two words, grow and know. It even rhymes, grow and know. And no, we must grow. Pilgrims must grow. Growth is a command. It's not an option. Again, notice what Peter is saying here. He doesn't say, I hope that you will grow. My desire is that you will grow. I really, really think it would be good for your spiritual life if you grow. He says this in an imperative. Grow. 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 In the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Instead of falling backwards, losing our own stability, instead of letting ourselves be carried away by lawless men leading us into lawless actions, the way we guard against that type of thing is to grow, to actively seek growth. It's not enough for us to merely avoid error, we must persist in an upward path, we must continue to grow. The term that Peter uses here has the idea of bringing up growth or increasing. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, known as the Septuagint, the word that Peter uses here is often translated with the idea of being fruitful or fruitfulness. And this makes sense throughout Scripture, even what we saw last week when we read in Mark chapter 4 of the parable of the sower and the seeds, what, what determined whether or not a seed was genuine, a believer was genuine. It was shown by the fact that they grew and brought forth fruit. And so Peter is encouraging us in that which God, really, from the beginning, has always desired for His people. When he created Adam and Eve and he set them in the garden, he blessed them and said to them, what's the first command? Be fruitful. Now this is referring to physical multiplication. It's referring to them tending the garden and working it, having dominion over the earth and subduing it over the fish of the sea, the birds of the heaven, over every living thing that moves upon the earth. But yet his desire from the beginning of creation is fruitfulness. We see this in his promises he made to Abraham, calling him out, taking him, and and changing his name from Abram to Abraham. He's made him the father of a multitude of nations, and he said, I will make you exceedingly what? Fruitful. I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And this is reiterated again as Jacob speaks to Joseph. God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will make, you, make of you a company of peoples and will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. So God's intention in creation, His intention among His covenant people has been fruitfulness, and that same desire exists among his people today. Jesus in John 15:1, I am the true vine and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit he prunes that it may bear more fruit. You see how even here Jesus is focusing on the need for us to grow in our fruitfulness. What do we call the attributes that the Spirit of God brings into our lives? We call it, Paul tells us in Galatians, it is the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against these things there is no law. So Peter's command is in line with God's eternal intention for His people. God wants us to grow, It's also consistent with the message of this entire book. In chapter 1, verse 8, if you just want to turn back there very quickly. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 8. He speaks of how we need to supplement our faith with certain virtues or certain, certain moral um, attributes. And he tells us if these qualities are ours and they're increasing, they keep us from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so, growth is commanded. It's not optional. As Jesus tells us in Mark 4.20, the good soil, those who know the Word of God, those who are genuine believers... See, this is one thing we have to keep in mind with that parable. Jesus is not describing in all of those different uh, soils that the, that the seed falls upon. He's not describing that every single one of those are the genuine people of God. The only genuine people of God are those who take the, the seed, it grows, and it bears fruit. The other ones, what happens to the, to the other seed? It dies. So Jesus defines his people by those who are growing, those who bear fruit. Jesus tells his disciples, by your what you'll know them? Fruit. It's not an option. And so I begin here by, with what, by challenging you with what Peter is challenging us with here, that if your life does not exhibit growth, then maybe it's time for you to step back and take a real evaluation of are you truly in Christ by faith? Are you exhibiting the fruit of the Spirit? Are you showing that the Lord is truly at work in your life? Again, Peter writes in, in two verses after what we just saw in 2 Pe- Peter 1.8 that we are called to make our calling and election What? Sure. How do we do that? How do we evaluate that? Are we growing? Again, this is a process that is commanded, and that it is a secondly, it is a process. Growth is continual. Peter says, but grow. And our English. Version here, the ESV, I think, misses a little bit of the sense in which um, Peter is trying to get this across. The the verb is in what we call an active form. And as an active form, we could have it be translated, always be growing or continue growing. Growth is not a one-time event. We do not bear fruit once, but rather our growth must be continual. Again, we see this in in the multiple fruit that Jesus speaks of in the parable of the sower. Some will bring forth fruit 30-fold, some 60-fold, some 100-fold. I think what's important to note there is that it's not saying that we have to all be 100-fold. Jesus recognizes that fruit will be different in quantity among different people. That's just the way He has designed to work among His people. But if there is no fruit... There's no root, there's no truth, there's no true hope. The New Testament does not conceive of a stalled or a stagnant Christian. You're either moving forward or you're falling backwards. That's what the New Testament makes abundantly clear. This goal is what Paul speaks of to the church at Ephesus. We're to speak the truth in love. As we speak the truth in love, what are we doing? We are to grow up in every way. And then here is the goal of our growth. Into Him who is the head. Who is Him? Who is the head of the church? Christ. Christ. He said earlier in this passage that our goal is to attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God so that we may have a mature, a grown manhood. What does a grown manhood look like to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ? So when we speak about what, how do we evaluate our growth, how do we know whether we're growing, the answer is we grow by seeking to become more like Jesus. That the goal of the Christian life is conformity into His image, not whatever image we would think it should be. This was Paul's great desire, the great desire of his life. He speaks in Philippians 3 that he's not attained to the resurrection or he's not already perfect. And this is important to keep in mind as well because Peter, Paul, Paul, Jesus, they're not calling us to perfection. They're calling us to growth. The goal is perfection. But can you ever in this life meet perfection? Now, praise God, there will be a day where we will come and see Christ for who He is. And then when we see Him as He is, we will be like Him. And there will come that day where sin, temptation, all of it is taken away from us and we will be perfect. But until that day, our desire is to grow, to attain for that. And notice what Paul says. I'm not perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Notice what he says. Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own, but one Thing I do what's interesting is Paul says this is the singular focus of his life one thing now Paul did a lot more than just one thing but behind everything that he did there was this singular focus he forgets what lies behind he strains forward to what lies before he presses on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus And then notice what he says, people who think this way, how does he describe them? They are those who are what? Mature. They are those who are growing. And then he says, if any of you think otherwise, the Lord will reveal this to you also. Only let us hold true to what we have obtained. So What does it mean, at least for for Paul's example, to seek to be like Christ? It is the one thing he lives for. It is the one thing he presses on for. It's the one thing that he strives for. He works with all the effort that he has within him to make Christ his own, to be like him. Now, The Apostle Paul, we look at, if we were to consider giants of the faith, heroes of the faith, I'm sure on many of your lists, the Apostle Paul would be right up there, right? And notice that he wasn't satisfied with where he was. Think about that for a second. The Apostle Paul was not satisfied with his growth before the Lord. He continued to press on to make Christ his own. How that should convict us. When we become complacent in our own walk with the Lord. When we feel like, oh, I'm doing pretty good. I've been at church three weeks this month. I went to Sunday evening. I went to Wednesday evening service. It's easy for us to look back on these things that we're doing and to become complacent and say, oh yes, I'm doing it, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm a good Christian. But if we're not progressing further, if we're not stretching onward, if we're not growing, no matter where we are in our walk with the Lord, we need to take careful evaluation of why we're that way and repent of it and turn to know Him more. The Bible calls us... And, Theologians speak of sanctification, the process of being made holy, as progressive. What we mean by that is it continues more and more. It fosters and grows more and more. Are you growing? Now, I'm not asking you if you are holding your own. Are you growing? Peter's commanding us to grow so growth is commanded growth is continual and the third thing we see about growth is it is dependent how do we grow how do we grow and peter gives us the answer in verse 18 grow in what the grace grow in grace grace While Peter calls us to continually be growing, he does not call us to draw upon our own resources for this growth. He commands us instead and commends to us instead to depend upon the grace of God. Our growth is dependent on the grace of God. And I fear that we often get off base on this in Christian circles. We are very quick to say, saved by grace. But how often do we say that we are growing by grace? I think sometimes we get in our minds this idea that it's our responsibility to make ourselves grow. And so we take a legalistic approach to growth. I have to do X, Y, and Z. I have to read my Bible every day. There's that song that they sing in junior church Read your Bible, pray every day. Pray every day. Pray every day. Read your Bible, pray every day. Angel, does anyone know it? grow, grow, grow. Now those things are true. But it's not the actions of reading and praying that are the thing that make you grow. It is your encounter with the grace of God through those means that causes you to grow. Growth must be dependent upon God's grace. Again, we've seen that often the scriptures refer to this in an agricultural illustration. Plants, if I were to take a plant, I've done this. You take a plant, you put the seed in the ground, you water the seed, and then you forget about the seed. And what happens to the plant? It dies. Can a plant inside, can it just grow on its own? I mean, unless it's like a weed, all right? Which we know those grow no matter what's going on. No, there has to be Something given to it. it has to receive nutrients. And in fact, if you were to take a plant and not provide any water, not provide any soil, just stick the seed and shoot it out into outer space, into a vacuum where there's no light, there's no nutrients, will that seed grow? No. And so we even see in, on, here on earth things for growth to happen among plants. Something has to be placed there to cause it to grow. And so it is that Peter is commending to us the very thing that provides that satisfying water, that provides that sustaining power. It is the grace of God. Now, what do we see this in? It is in the word of truth. Notice what Paul says in Colossians chapter 1. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth. Of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world. What is the word doing? Bearing fruit and increasing. It's growing. And then this is not just referring to the idea of evangelism, that that the kingdom is growing, although that's in mind here. But he also says it's also increasing among you, in you, since the day you heard it. And understood the grace of God in truth. You see how he connects all of these things together. That we grow by our dependence upon the word of God. And the word of God comes to us through the grace of God that's given to us. Isaiah describes the word of God as rain and snow. You know, We're getting closer to winter time. And sometimes I wish he wouldn't have put the snow in there. Because we know it's coming around the corner. But what does the rain and snow do? It comes down from heaven and it does not return there, but it waters the earth. It makes it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty. It shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. God's word always produces the fruit he desires. And it is through his word that fruit is produced in our own lives. So that song, Read Your Bible, Pray Every Day, there's truth in that, not because the action of reading the Word of God is what causes us to grow, but because God has intended by His grace for the Word of God to be the primary means by which that grace works to bring us to grow. Paul recognized this when he wrote to the church at Corinth. They were bickering over who baptized them. I was baptized by Paul. I was baptized by Paulus. And some of them would say, yeah, I'm just a follower of Jesus. And Paul says, look, I may have planted, Apollos may have watered, but who is the one who gave the growth? God gave the growth. So neither is he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. We need to understand and recognize that the reason we are where we are in our walk with the Lord is because God has given us that growth by His grace. It is not you who have brought you this far. It is God's grace that has brought you this far. God gives the growth, the, gro- the grace, the growth. And so we need to recognize that reality. Now, what type of grace does God give us? Paul, in his second letter to the Corinthians, tells us this, and this is remarkable. God is able to make how much grace abound to you? All grace. He's able to make all grace abound to you. Why? So that we can go out and and live lawless lives? No. No so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may, what? Abound in every good work. Not stumble along, not struggle, but abound. This is the concept that Paul has in mind, that God's grace is of such value that we can triumph in this life. It says, as it is written, he who he has distributed freely, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. And then he takes God's work in creation and his work in our spiritual lives and links them together. He says, the same God who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of whose Righteousness. Your righteousness. And then this is what the grace of God does. It enriches us in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. Is it it at all indicated anywhere in this passage that Paul is saying that we're lacking something to grow? No. He uses superlative words. All sufficiency. Abound. Multiply. Enriched. This is what God's grace has, been, has done and gives to you so that you can grow. But you have to grow in dependence upon God's grace. You cannot grow apart from dependence on the grace of God. I fear that many of us approach the Christian life with a dependence upon ourselves and then we get frustrated with our Christian walk because we fail and falter. Because here's here's the reality. You are not enough. The world would like to tell you that you are more than enough. You are not. You're not enough. God in Christ has called you to his own glory. How many of you here think you can reach that yourself? There's no way. But God calls you to do that which you cannot do on your own. He then equips you with that which is necessary to do what he calls you to do. So that you can abound in every work. Being enriched by his grace you are not enough but Christ is more than enough and so our growth is something we must actively seek don't, don't let me intimate to you or don't come away thinking that well if it's all up to God's grace then I just need to sit back and, and ride, ride the grace train no Otherwise, why would God put commands in His Word? Peter says, grow. Continue growing. Always be growing. But make sure your growth is focused on the grace of God. Grow in grace. Continue growing. And continue growing in dependence on Christ Himself. Pilgrims must grow. But then secondly, Paul calls us to grow in the grace and then the second thing he focuses on is that our growth needs to be pointed towards and have as its content the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Pilgrims must know Jesus. If we're taking these, this principle to grow, we have to grow as God has commanded in dependence upon His grace, continually seeking that. And then the second thing we recognize in our growth is that we have to grow in our knowledge of Jesus. This is the most basic and fundamental aspect of what it means to be a Christian. What is a Christian? A Christian is someone who knows Jesus. Now this has been, in many ways, a key focus of Peter's letter here in 2 Peter. In fact, he introduces it to us in chapter 1, verse 2. In chapter 1, verse 2, he says, May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of of Jesus our Lord. He speaks of that the power that we have for pilgrims comes from the knowledge of Him. Verse 3, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. And again, in verse 8, we are called to supplement our faith with these virtues so that we would not become ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Knowing Jesus is the great, focus of the Christian life and it provides for us the strength and the power we need to walk through this world now what exactly does it mean to grow in the knowledge of God and particularly the knowledge of Jesus what does what, what is, what is that involve is it just filling our minds with facts about who Jesus is no no You know, there are scholars that teach at very respected Ivy League schools that probably know more details about the life of Christ and the history around that than I could ever hope to, but they don't know Jesus. You can know a lot about someone without knowing the person. I think a lot of us, some people pursue a Wikipedia knowledge of Jesus. You know, you look up, I can go to Joe Biden's Wikipedia page and I can pull up all the facts about our president and, and where he grew up and, and learn all about his life. I can, I, in fact, they write biographies about presidents. I can find a biography about him, a big thick volume, and, and read all about him. But I don't know Joe Biden. I don't know the president. And I fear that many people approach this book in the same way. We approach the Scripture in the same way. Oh, I can, can learn a lot about Jesus. But if I'm going to grow as a Christian, Peter is calling me to know Jesus. Well, what does that mean? It means, first of all, that we have to pursue this knowledge of Jesus by seeking to be like Him. We need to seek to be like our Savior. In Second Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, Paul makes this wonderful truth about the Word of God, that when we look to the, the Word, our face is unveiled. And there we see the glory of the Lord. And as we see the glory of the Lord, it does something to us, it changes us, it transforms us into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. And then in chapter 4, sort of pulling on the same idea, he tells us this, that God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of what? The knowledge of the glory of God. Where do we see that? In the face of Jesus Christ. So what does it mean to grow in our knowledge of Christ? It means that we grow to be more like Him. As we know Him more, we exhibit His character in ourselves. Secondly, if we're going to grow in the knowledge of Christ, it means continual repentance. Continual repentance. Hosea calls us to this. Hosea chapter 6, verses 1 through 3. Hosea is a a wonderful book. I commend it to you. One of my favorite minor prophets. And Hosea, in writing to and prophesying to the nation of Israel that had disobeyed and turned its back on God over and over again, he says, Come, let us return to the Lord. For he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down and he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. And on the third day, he will raise us up that we may live before him. Let us know, let us, what does he say here? Press on. Like Paul said, what are we pressing on to do? To know the Lord is going out as sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. Continual repentance. There is a reality that if we truly are knowing and seeing the glory of God in His Word, and we are actually, by God's grace, seeing it clearly, We cannot walk away unchanged. Every time you see someone in Scripture see the glory of God, they are wrecked in who they are. We see it in Isaiah. Isaiah sees God high and lifted up. His holiness clearly displayed there. And what does he do? Woe is me, I'm undone. But I think one of the people that Peter references in this book is a man, a prophet by the name of Balaam. We know Balaam's story. He was, he was called upon to curse Israel. And every time he would try to speak a curse to Israel, rather than a curse coming out, what came out? Blessing. And so as, as this, this story is unfolding, and, and he goes and, and he, he gets on his donkey, and he goes on the way to again meet with this king who's calling him to do this. And as he's on the way, his donkey keeps not cooperating. It would lay down. It, it brushed him up against a wall. It, it, it finally just said, I'm not going any further. And, and Balaam gets, he's beating this donkey saying, what are you doing? And the poor donkey's like, look. And, and God opens the mouth of the donkey and says, you idiot. I mean, he doesn't say that. That's the, that's the Phil Golden version. But he's like, you idiot. I'm trying to save your life. And then the Lord opens the eyes of Balaam and what he sees is the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand. And what does Balaam do? Does he walk away from that like, oh, that's interesting and go about his business? What does he do? He bowed down and fell on his face. You cannot genuinely see the glory of God apart from transformation. Now we know Balaam persisted in his sinfulness. But that's exactly what Peter is warning us against when he speaks of the way of Balaam. That we were to see the glory of Christ and to come away from it unchanged. And so Peter exhorts us to grow in knowing God by continual repentance and change. It means, thirdly, that we spread Christ's knowledge. Thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of what? The knowledge of Him where? Everywhere. I think one of the greatest illustrations of this is when Jesus was facing the cross and and there a woman came with a box of spikenard, very precious. This was likely her dowry. It was of immense value. She takes this box and she doesn't open it up and drip a few drops there. What does she do? Breaks the box and pours out all of this fragrance upon Christ and wipes His feet with her hair. And the Scripture tells us that the fragrance, the disciples, they smelt this fragrance. It was powerful. It was strong. It filled the room. And that's what Paul is calling us to do, that we are willing to break the most valuable, precious things that we have to us and to set them aside so that people would see not what I've accomplished, not how far I've gone, not what I've done, but so that they would smell the fragrance of the knowledge of God in my life. Do people know that you know Jesus Christ? You know, I I bet you today if if you were walking out there, people, people do this all the time. You know, you see somebody on television or, or you see the president and, and you're talking about him or whatever and, and you were to say to somebody, if, if you knew the president, you, it would be probably really hard for you to say, to not say, well, you know, I know him, right? We like to brag about the people we know, right? Especially if they're, you know, important people. Listen, do you spread the fragrance of the fact that you know the King of kings and Lord of lords to those around you? Can people smell that knowledge on you? That's how we increase in knowing Him. And then again, what we saw in 2 Corinthians 9, we can never exhaust all that is in the knowledge of Christ. Christ. We can never exhaust that. As Paul says in Romans eleven thirty three. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How unscrutable his ways. I think as Peter connects growth with knowing Christ, the question needs to come up in our own minds. Are, are you happy with what you know about Jesus? Are you content there? Maybe you, maybe, and I think this is something that we need to be challenged with, particularly as those who have known the Lord for a long period of time. Because when you talk to somebody who's first come to faith in Christ, they're excited about it, aren't they? They love to know more. They they love, they come to the Word, they're asking questions about it, and they're seeking to grow in them. And, and, And that's wonderful. But what happens to us? Why do we become complacent? And Peter is saying, don't. Grow in grace and knowledge of Jesus. Particularly here in our passage, just very quickly, he speaks of our need to know Jesus as Lord and as Savior. Pilgrims must know Christ as Lord. This means that we are going to willingly submit to Him in every aspect of our life. Every aspect. Every demand He makes upon us. We cannot pick and choose how much of His commands we will obey. We will either submit to Christ's Lordship or we will not. Jesus must be Lord of all that we are. David, I'm sorry, Solomon here in 1 Kings chapter 8 speaks of of what God is doing in bringing about this great kingdom. And he says that all the people of the earth may know that the Lord is God. There is no other. So let your heart therefore be what? Wholly true. Does that mean that you get to hold back a part of yourself? Does that mean that, 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 that you're allowed to leave something for you to do as you see fit? No. Jesus doesn't want part of your heart. He doesn't want 49%, 51%, 76%, or 99%. Jesus wants all of your heart. And if you are following him and wholly true to him, then what does that look like? You walk in his statutes and you keep his commandments. This is what it means to know Jesus as Lord. Now, the reality is, is in our sinfulness, every day, every week, week after week, there are areas in our life where we do not bow the knee to Christ and we fall into sin. And that's where our knowledge of God requires that continual repentance, pressing on to turn away from sin and to turn more to know Christ. Christ. We have to know Jesus as Lord. And as we know Jesus as Lord, we then need to know Him as Savior. Peter says in his sermon here in Acts 4, Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel but that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by Him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone, and there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must, we must be saved. Peter, again, is reminding us to... Know Jesus as Lord and Savior. Just a quick note, those two things are not, they're not separated. If you know Christ as Savior, you will know Him as Lord. There is teaching in the church today that says you can know Christ as Savior but not know Him as Lord. And the New Testament does not conceive of that as a possibility. You either know Christ as Savior and Lord, or you don't know the Christ who exists. You have a Christ of your own imagination. And so we are called to know our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In chapter 2, Peter warned us that it would be better for us to have never known the way of righteousness than to have claimed to know it and turn back from it. These few ending words remind us to take into account of our lives. Do we know Jesus as Savior? Is He alone our Savior? You, know, you say, well, I've been going to churches like this church for all my life. I've, I've had this, this confession of Christ all my life. And yet, the Scripture over and over again calls us to realize that there are going to be tares among the wheat. That there are going to be those who can act and say everything to make them feel like and, and look like genuine Christians. But in the end, even these people who will do things in the name of Christ, there will be those in the end that Christ will look at and will say, depart from me, I never what? Knew you. So Peter, as he ends this letter, reminds us that we have to grow. We have to grow particularly in knowing Christ. Two simple commands, grow and know. Are you growing? Or are you happy with where you are in your walk with the Lord? Are you complacent? Oh, I've I've got that Christian things handled. And do you know Christ? Do you know him by seeking to be like him? Do you know him through continual repentance of the ways in which you're not living in submission to his lordship? Are you spreading the knowledge of him everywhere? Jesus says that this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only God, and Jesus Christ whom you sent. Why does Jesus connect eternal life with the knowledge of God and of himself? Because he is an infinite being. How long does it take to know an infinite being? Infinity. Eternity. And one thing that we're able to then recognize as we walk this life, is, as we grow in our knowledge of God, as the, as the truth of Christ excites you and grows within you, you know what that is? You know how you, you feel that joy Maybe it's a joy that you've lost from from when you were uh, uh, originally a a convert and, and came to Christ and it's something that you need to have reinvigorated within you. You know that feeling, that almost euphoric feeling that you have when you see the glory of Christ? That's what eternity will be like nonstop. You get to taste a little bit of the joy of what living forever is like as you know and grow in your knowledge of Jesus Christ. Christ is the fountain of living waters. And if we drink of Him, we will never thirst. We will be satisfied and yet still desire more. And that will be our joy for all eternity. So take these words of Peter. Grow in the grace and knowledge of of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is a needed principle for the pilgrim's path.